referred to as ecclesiology. And so I want to begin by thinking about ecclesiology, specifically what it is and why it matters. So what is ecclesiology? Well, very simply, it's the doctrine of the church. It's deriving from the scriptures what our Lord teaches about the nature of the church. Um, it comes from the Greek word. It appeared in the text that we just read when Jesus said, I will build my church. He said, I will build my ecclesia. And so ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. And we'll be thinking about this topic this week and next. And I do think it is, sadly, a neglected doctrine in our day and age. Um, as we will see, the church is the people of God. And if we don't understand ecclesiology, then we simply do not know who we are. But let's think about the, the biblical terms. What are the words in the scriptures that we find to denote the church? Uh, the Bible uses in the Old Testament a Hebrew word kahal, and in the New Testament, in the Greek, it uses the word ekklesia to denote the church. And an important feature of both of those words that I want to underline for you is that they both refer to a called-out assembly of people. A called-out assembly of people. And there has actually been much written on how uh, our term church kind of loses this a bit. Our term church is actually derived um, from the Greek word kirikon. You might hear it referred to as kirk. Kirikon. And that actually comes from the Greek word for Lord, kurios. And for that reason, while the church is the Lord's, that's what they're trying to reflect in that, our term church doesn't really reflect the rich nuances of the scriptural terms that we find in the Old and New Testaments. Um, Robert Raymond, a, a systematic theologian, he wrote, because of this, and that translation, Kirikon or Kirk, English translations have lost a rich nuance of scripture regarding the people of God. You see, the biblical terms tell us that the church consists of those whom God has called out from all humanity to be his people. He calls them by name. The church is a people effectually called by Christ. A.A. A. Hodge put it this way, To this church or collective body of the effectually called, all the promises of the gospel are addressed. It is said to be the pillar and ground of the truth, the body and fullness of Christ, the bride, the Lamb's wife, and it is affirmed that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. William Symington added this, he says, The church consists of all who in every age and every place make a credible profession of true religion together with their children. So I want us to frame our thoughts around that, the fact that the church is a redeemed people who profess the true religion. But 
to think about why this matters, why does ecclesiology matter? Why should we care? Well, we should care because it helps us understand who we are in Christ, but also we should care because we are plagued today with what we might call bad ecclesiology. And I think I included this on your outline. Do I have the contributing problems there? Uh, we live in an age of rampant individualism, where the sovereignty of the individual is encouraged, it is glorified. Um, more than that, we live in an egalitarian society. Um, egalitarianism is this belief that all people um, ha have an equal place and should have an equal say in things. Um, we we read in this passage how um, Jesus entrusted the keys of the kingdom to the disciples. In other words, there was to be an authority structure, and people chafe under that today. The, the rampant individualism that we see has people less likely to want to submit to authority within the bride of Christ. And secondly, a contributing problem is a confusion about ownership. Who owns the church? Um, Carl Truman says that today in America, we look at the church as a human response to divine initiative. And, and what he means by that is that we can say, yes, Jesus died for us sinners, but the church is now our response. It's something that we are doing. But as we read here, the church is not ours, it's Christ. We don't own the church. It's not our church. Christ is the king and head thereof. Thirdly, there is, I think, no denying the fact that we live in a culture dominated by a consumer mentality. And it always asks, what's in it for me? What have you done for me lately? And if you haven't done anything for me lately, well, I'm simply going to take my business somewhere else. And don't get me wrong, church membership, it involves rights and privileges. But it also involves responsibilities and sacrifices. And sometimes it involves submission to our leaders. And you read the statistics on uh, pastor burnout, and they are pretty staggering. And um, it's, it's something that's an issue in the de denomination where I serve. We are a small denomination. And the number of pastors that have burned out and left the ministry is very striking. And if I could give an example of the, the stories I've heard related to me, what's, what's behind this pastor burnout? I would say it's this consumer mentality where pastors and even elders are looked at like they are hotel managers who are there to give people everything they want. And if, if the service that is desired is not provided, then people will complain and nag until, quote, the hotel manager gets fired. Um, so that consumer mentality is a real thing. It's we need to have that balance that, yes, we have rights and privileges as church members, but it also comes with responsibilities 
sacrifices and submission to leadership. And then lastly, just, I think, a general neglect of the doctrine. And again, it's a tragic thing because not to understand the doctrine of the church is not to know who we are as the bride of Christ. So ecclesiology, why it matters, and we'll come back next week and dive into these some of these things deeper. But let's secondly uh, think about the visible and invisible church uh, that the confession outlines in those first two sections. Uh, section one, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then section two speaks of the visible church. So why is this an important distinction that we should understand? Um, it's, it's a distinction that was first developed by Augustine in the 5th century, but some would even argue that we see this concept as early as Irenaeus, who died in the year 202. There's a distinction between the invisible and the visible church. And it's important that we understand what the scriptures say about this, because it's often uh, misunderstood and misused, even abused. Um, the visible church is the church as an institution that we see visibly in this world. It has a list of members. It has roles that we can identify. But the invisible church is, I think, mistakenly often thought of something that's antithetical to the visible church. Something that's different or outside of the visible church. Um, Professor John Murray corrects this idea when he wrote, There is only one church of Christ. It has an invisible aspect, but there are not two churches. And the reason I think that's important to understand is what we see today or what I've heard many times is people who shun church membership in a local visible church and say, well, I'm a member of the invisible church. I'm part of the invisible church. I don't need to be a member at a local church. But that's a perversion of what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Augustine or Irenaeus taught. So let's th think about the, the visible church. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I have one example from 1 Corinthians 1-2, but this is a pattern throughout the epistles. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. And if you read, all of the epistles contain something like this, to the saints in such and such a city. E even the book of Revelation, which we think of this abstract, hard to understand book, it was written to whom? To the seven churches in Asia Minor. Those were churches in particular cities. There were roles of membership there, and those churches were all connected together. Those were the visible church. 
But the invisible church, we see in the passage we read as our call to worship from Hebrews chapter 12. And we are told that we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, and it's that word, ecclesia, to the ecclesia of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So here we get this biblical picture of the invisible church. It's all of the elect in every age, past, present, future, alive or dead, that are in Christ, those that are truly regenerate, both on earth and in heaven. And it's maybe a comfort if you've lost a loved one who died in Christ. Have you ever thought about the fact when we, when we gather in this little room to worship, you are worshiping Jesus with them? That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. This is what we have come to. We are in the presence of Christ, of the saints that have gone before us in glory. Now, this distinction, the visible an invisible church, it seeks to be faithful to the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. And it reminds us that the church is a mixed body. That there are people in the visible church who may not be part of the invisible church. Jesus taught that there are sheep, and there are goats, there are wheat, there are tares, there are true converts, there are false converts. And that's why we'll look at this more next week, but section four of the confession says the Catholic Church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. In particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. And so within the confines of the visible church, there are people who are true believers who are really part of that invisible church, but there are also unbelievers with inside the inside the invisible. And that I think reminds us that as important it is as it is to be connected to a local body, the the ultimate thing that matters is that someone is in Christ. When we would interview people for for membership, we would hear their profession of faith. And one of the things I would always underline is that as human leaders, we have no authority to determine the state of your soul. That what we listen for is what is called a credible profession of faith. Can you articulate the gospel? Do you understand what it is to trust in Jesus? But just because someone can articulate that doesn't mean that they are truly in Christ. So we have to maintain that balance. Yes, church membership is critical for our growth. But what is most critical is that someone is in Christ. 
Now, in relation to that, I, w- I want to just share a concluding thought about church membership and church involvement in light of this. And to answer that question, I think that is asked often, and that is, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Is church attendance, uh, assuming that you are physically able to do so, is that a requirement to get into heaven? Well, in a very technical sense, the answer is no. But I want you to consider a few things as we answer the question. The first is that Christ commanded his people not to forsake the assembling together, Hebrews 10.25. And if you you read on in that chapter, uh, the next section is about apostasy. And the idea there is that the first step towards apostasy is forsaking corporate worship. You know, when God constituted his people in the Old Testament, he organized them into a visible assembly, and he placed them under clear obligation to be in worship. And so if a person is in Christ, then they are called into the fellowship of other Christians and the worship of God according to the precepts of Christ. And along with this, there there are in the Bible 58 one another commands. Love one another. Do this for one another. And those are commands that they're not, they're not just addressed to pastors and elders. They're addressed to all believers. And that means we have an obligation to each other, an obligation that simply cannot be fulfilled unless we are in worship together, unless we are part of a local church. And if we survey church history from the church fathers like Cyprian and Augustine to the medieval church to the reformers, we find the clear conclusion that the Bible teaches that outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The church is likened in the Bible to a family, a household, a kingdom. And all of those things require something like membership and commitment, belonging, identifying with the larger group. Now that said, there are what we might call extraordinary means of salvation to those outside the visible church. Listen to what Chad Van Dixhorn says on this. A repentant thief on a cross, a Muslim convert to Christ who has not yet discovered other believers, or a man stranded on a desert island with only a Bible, each has plausible reasons for not being part of a church. But people who claim to be believers and refuse to join the church in the face of clear biblical instruction and providential opportunity to do so should deeply worry us. These are like people who say they are in love but refuse to get married. Usually they want the privileges of the relationship without the responsibility of commitment. 
Their refusal to publicly commit to Christ's church casts doubt on the genuineness of their devotion to him, as does a refusal to publicly commit to marriage. The pattern of the New Testament is clear. When people were joined to Christ, they were joined to a local church. When we read of uh, the people devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and of prayer, that triad is, is a reference to the means of grace found within the local church, the preaching of the word, prayer, the sacraments. In Acts 2.47, Luke tells us that after Peter's sermon, that the Lord added to the church those who are being saved. And so if a person knows all of these things and persistently and willfully refuses to join a church, would that not maybe raise serious questions? about the reality of that person's conversion. Now, we need to keep in mind that many who profess to be Christians don't know all these things. They don't understand their need for the church. They have been taught, in fact, their whole life that they don't need the church. And so we need to be understanding. We need to meet people where they are. R.C. Sproul writing on this, he says, Some of us may be deceiving ourselves in terms of our own conversion. We may claim to be Christians, but if we love Christ, how can we despise his bride? How can we consistently and persistently refuse that which he has called us to join, his visible church? I offer a sober warning to those who are doing this. You may, in fact, be deluding yourself about the state of your soul. And I think today in, in American Christianity, it's almost become in vogue to bash the church. I don't need the church. And people speak so negatively about the bride of Christ. So I hope this helps us balance our our thinking when it comes to the church. Can someone be in Christ and outside of the church? Yes, but I would say that's the exception rather than the rule. And um, this is, the, the church is the bride of Christ, the pillar and ground of the truth. These are, uh, these are terms that imply strength, that imply benefit for us. And so next week we'll talk a bit more about this, but I think this should encourage us you know, as we look at our, our humble little gathering to remember that we are the bride of Christ. We are the pillar or the, like a support beam for the truth of his word, and uh, we should embrace who we are and give thanks to Christ that he died for his church. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you might renew our love for your bride, for your people. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we, Lord, deal with those who may profess Christ but 
seem to despise his bride. Lord, may we be able to encourage them and be gracious to them and instruct them in your truth. Lord, we pray as a visible body of your believers here that you would make us faithful witnesses to the gospel of Jesus, that we might truly uphold your truth, living in light of who we are, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.